Well, welcome back, everyone. So glad to see you all here. We're going to get started right away, so I just invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful lunch we've enjoyed. Thank you for the physical food that nourishes us, and we thank you for the continual spiritual food that you're giving to us. I pray again for my dear friend Narlin, dear Lord, that you anoint his lips from coals off your altar. And thank you for the wonderful message he's been giving to us. Father, convict our hearts of the shortness of time and help us to be wholly committed to you and your truth. For Jesus' sake I pray, amen. on how we should conduct ourselves as Christian because, you know, we're judged literally by how we dress. And we're going to show you that. And anytime a person changes sides, they also change garments. In an army, if you were once fighting for the U.S. and you're not fighting for Russia, you're not going to wear the same uniform. You're going to change uniform. So it's the same thing. Once you give yourself to the Lord, you want to also change uniforms. Now, I'm a firm believer that what you don't know can hurt you. And I've shared this principle before. If you're walking on a beach... And there's glass or a nail under the sand and you don't see it and you step on it. Is it going to hurt? And if you saw it, you'll be able to avoid it. So what you don't know can hurt you. And the Bible says in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What is that saying? What you don't know can hurt you. Then it goes on to say, because they have rejected knowledge, I have rejected them. So some people suffer from lack of knowledge and some people... Uh, suffer from the rejection of the knowledge that was given them. So I pray that if we're lacking knowledge, that once we obtain the knowledge, we won't reject the knowledge. Now, we're also told in a wonderful book, Education, which is one of my favorite books, by the way, and it's also written by Ellen White. She says, no education can be complete that does not teach right principles in regard to dress. So in other words, if you're not teaching dress, it's an incomplete education. It says, without such teaching, the work of education is too often retarded and perverted. Love of dress and devotion to fashion are among the teacher's most formidable rivals and most effective hindrances. So that means dress is a part of the complete education. Now, as I mentioned, when you talk about dress, it literally goes against the grain. Um, my wife and I, we were into fashion big time at one point. We, we lived in New York. Uh, our minds were, you know, very much in a worldly sense in the things of this world and we used to literally go shopping almost every day so i'm not telling you uh you know we were we were on broad street we were in um uh, the village uh broadway we, we we literally shopped almost every day uh so this is not something that's far-fetched from myself and my wife it's something that we also had to pray about and got victory over and praise god for the victories that he's given us and the same victories available to all of us amen but the point that I'm bringing out here is that dress is something that goes against the natural inclination. Because dress, dressing the way we dress, it pleases ourselves. And Enoch, we mentioned, before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So Enoch was not so caught up in how much I'm going to please myself. Before his translation means on this earth, Enoch had the testimony that he pleased God. That's Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. And in Romans chapter 15 and verse 3, the Bible says, Christ pleased not 
himself. So most of the time the way we dress and the way we carry ourselves is not to please God, but it's to literally please ourselves. So as Christians, the first thing that we must determine, if we're going to be like Christ, Christ pleased not himself. Who did he please? The Bible says he pleased only the Father which art in heaven. So Jesus focused on pleasing his Father. So that means if it's not something that's pleasing to us, that means it's going to be a cross. And as we share throughout this four weeks, a cross is when our desires crosses with God's desires. God says, this is the way, walk ye in it. And then you say, I'm going this way, or I say, I'm going this way. Then what do you get? You get a cross. If you're going parallel to God, then it's no longer a cross. So sometimes we run across a cross, and then God is saying, as the heavens are higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So when it comes to a, the point where there's a cross, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, we need to change our minds to get ourselves in harmony with Jesus. So the dress reform comes with a cross, and that's why Paul says, I die daily. That's why Paul says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So Paul is admonishing us that we're going to come across crosses, but we must be willing to sacrifice. Now, even in Ellen White's time, there was issues on dress. And notice what she says. She says, the reformed dress is simple and helpful, yet there's a cross in it. I thank God for the cross and cheerfully bow to lift it. So we see that the dress is definitely a cross for everyone. And there's a song that says, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for, for me. So Jesus said that there's a cross for everyone. Now, um, we have also mentioned that when it comes to the Christian experience, there's certain things that feels like a sacrifice. But we also mentioned that there's anything that God asks us to give up is not a real sacrifice. And why do I say that? A parent only asks a child to give up something because it's beneficial. All right? The child might not see it, and I gave the example, a child might be running around with a knife and the child is enjoying itself and having a lot of fun in the child's estimation, but the child doesn't see that that thing that it's holding on to is very dangerous. So the parent has to tactfully go to the child and pry or take the knife away from the child because even though the child thinks that it's having fun, it does not realize that that knife could literally take, take its life. So it's the same thing with God. There's some things that we hold on to. There's some things that we love. There's some things that we enjoy. And God sees the longevity of it that is only going to cause destruction and death. So God says, as a parent, because I'm your father which art in heaven, I have to take away the thing that seems so fun and so joysome to you because I know the effect that it's going to have. Therefore, we are never called upon to make a real sacrifice for God. Many things he asks to get us to yield to him. But in doing this, we are but giving up that which hinders us in the heavenward way. So God says, I'm asking you to take the thing away because I re recognize that it's only going to be a hindrance for you to get or to stay on your heavenly journey. And that's why... Paul says in the book of Philippians chapter 3 that everything that I gave up for God, I don't consider them a sacrifice. He says, I count them all but dung. That word dung means rubbish. Why? That I may get to know him. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So we're not going to get to heaven unless we know Jesus. And Paul says, I gave up all these things and I count them as rubbish because I got to know Jesus better. And then in verse 14, the Bible says that we have a high calling to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, for the sake of time, we'll skip through those. Now, as the children of Israel, as a sojourn through the wilderness, God taught us some lessons there. And there were pit stops along the way. And every pit stop that they had was a cross. When they got to Marah, you remember those bitter waters? There was a cross. When they got to Elam and Rephthim and Mount Oreb and... Uh, Mount Sinai and Kibroth uh, uh, the, the and all these places, Hezroth, there was always an issue for them. But there's another place that was a bigger issue. They wanted the wilderness of sin, and it was a place called Moab. And in Moab, you want to notice how close it is to the Canaan? Remember, they left Egypt, and if they went straight, we mentioned it would have been 250 miles. 
which they easily did 18 to 23 miles a day, which means they could have got there in 11 days. But God had them go the long route. And not only that, they wandered in the wilderness. They kept circling around. But notice how close they are to the promised land. Canaan is right here. And literally, it is almost the last stop. I mean, they had to go to Jericho, but they were very, very close. And then Satan threw another attack on them. And you want to know what it was? He threw down a stumbling, stumbling rock to trip him up. But praise God, he wants to remove the stumbling blocks. Amen? So right at Moab, he enlisted some woman to his service. You did it in Numbers chapter 25. So right there at Moab, you can see they can literally see the promised land. They could probably see the grapes and smell the fresh air of Canaan. And Satan says, I'm not going to just let them go in. I'm, I have another trap for them. And then he enlists some women in his service. And they ran into a stumbling block. And we're told, Satan's sneers are laid for us as verily as they were laid for the children of Israel just prior to their entrance to the land of Canaan. We are repeating the history of that people. So you can rest assured, Satan has that same snare for us. Now watch. The Israelites who would not be overcome by the arms or by the enchantments of the Midian fell a prey to their harlots. Such is a power that woman enlists in the service of Satan has exerted to entrap and destroy souls. It was thus that the children of Seth were seduced from their integrity and the holy seed became corrupt. It was thus that Joseph was tempted. Thus Samson betrayed his strength, the defense of Israel, into the hands of the Philistines. Here David stumbled. And Solomon, the wisest of kings, who had thrice been called the beloved of his God, became a slave of passion and sacrificed his integrity to the same bewitching power. So Satan knows how to utilize women, sometimes even unbeknown to them, enlist them in his service and cause entrapments for both themselves and for the men that seize them. Now, as we look at dress to kill, we're going to look at it from three perspectives. One, spiritual. Two, physical. And then three, moral. So let's first begin to look at it from a spiritual perspective. Now, I'm going to run through these quickly, um, just for the sake of time. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13, and this is the premise of why I entitled it Dress to Kill. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13, it's the sixth commandment. And what does that say? Thou shalt not kill. You got that? Thou shalt not kill. Now, when we did our message on the whole duty of man, we mentioned that a person does not kill only by physically slaying someone. There's another way of killing. The Bible says, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already in your heart. The Bible also says in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 22, it says, if you hate your brother without a cause, you are guilty of the judgment. Now, go with me to 1 John. And let's look at that. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15. 1 John is second last, one of the second closest books to Revelation. So if you go all the way in the back of your Bible, go to Jude. Then you have 3 John, 2 John, and then 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. And notice what the Bible says in verse 15. The Bible says we're talking about different ways in which we can kill. Remember, we're looking at the commandment says, Thou shalt not kill. Whoso hateth his brother is a murderer, and we know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. So God says, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer. Now watch what it says in verse 12. Not as Cain who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, wherefore slew he him because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. So the Bible likens hating our brother to being a murderer. And then it likens it on to how Cain slew his brother. Now, when Cain slew his brother, do you remember what God said about that? He said that your brother's blood is crying unto me from the ground. You guys remember that? So after Abel was there lying on the ground, God came to him and says, Cain, where is your brother? What did he say? Am I my brother's keeper? And then God said to him, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, I want you to notice something. That death 
could come in various ways. As we talk about thou shalt not kill. Now go with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. And notice what the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 33 and verse 34. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 33 and verse 34. And by the way, it's important for me to mention that what we're sharing is not for condemnation, but for education. So you might find that some of the things that we might speak about today, you're not doing it yet. And don't think that I'm, you're being judged. Don't think that you're being condemned. It's simply education. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Therefore, we're giving you the knowledge so that you can begin to follow the knowledge with the goal that you don't reject the knowledge because God said when you reject the knowledge, then I also will reject thee. And the Bible also says this is a condemnation that light has come to the world and men choose darkness rather than light. So condemnation only comes when light comes and then you choose to follow the darkness rather than light. All right, Jeremiah chapter 2, are we there? Verse 33, the Bible says, why trimmeth thou thy way to seek love? Wherefore, therefore hast thou also taught the wicked one thy way. Now watch what it says in verse 34. Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocent. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. So God is saying in the skirts are also found the blood of the innocent. So we see that there's a certain way that we can dress that God says, You're, I'm going to require the blood of the innocent based on the fact that you are dressed a certain way. Let's look at it a little bit further. Let's go now to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 7. And let's notice what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 7. And let's first look at verse 10. Proverbs 7 and verse 10. The Bible says in Proverbs 7 and verse 10, And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. Now, when the Bible talks about attire, what is that? Garment or what the person is wearing. And the Bible says she has the attire of an harlot. So that tells you that there's a certain way that you can dress that God says, whatever you're wearing, it actually looks like a harlot. And there's a way that you dress that God says the way you dress also looks like a Christian. Are you with me so far? Now, what happened to this lady that was dressed like a harlot? What did she do to, 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 to men? Verse 25. Is that Go straight to 26. In fact, go to 25. It says, let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths. Verse 25 says, For she hath cast down many wounded men, yea, strong men, have been what? Slain by her. Her house is the ways to hell, going down to the chambers of death. So what is God saying? There's many women who are dressed a certain way that cause men to be slayed. In other words, these women, the way they were dressed, slew men because they were dressed to kill. You catch that? All right. Now, in the Bible, you find that the Bible talks about apparel 27 times, garment 82 times, garments, uh, garments, garment 82, garments 88, raiment 56. And then in the writings of Ellen White, you find that she talks about fashion 1,312 times, fashions 481 times, dress 2,288 times, and raiment 609 times. What am I saying? That sometimes we think that these things are not important, but they are much more important than we think. Now, why is this so important? Because everything that we do, especially the way we dress, because that's the first thing, that's the first impression that we make. If you're going for a job interview, and you go there in shorts and torn up jeans and a t-shirt and so on and so forth, and you're going to be an executive for a company, what's the first thing they'll say? Well, obviously, you didn't take this thing seriously, right? And by the way, do you know which company has one of the strictest dress policies? Victoria's Secret. You study Victoria's Secret, they have very, very strict dress policies. Their workers can't just come to the office anyway. There's another one as well, um, Chick-fil-A, very uh, a Christian company, and they have a dress code for all of their employees. They can't just come dressed to work anyhow. In fact, I remember um, when I used to drive pretty fast, 
I, got, I think I shared with you guys my road rage before. And I found myself oftentimes in court. They always hand a document out. And you know what it say? It says, anyone that comes before this judge, this earthly judge, it would say, no tank tops, no shorts, no jeans, turn off the cell phones, and so on and so forth. And they have all these dress codes and codes that we must follow before we enter the court. And this is an earthly court. Now, what must we say about the heavenly court and the heavenly king and the heavenly judge? Does God still have standards as well? If an earthly judge has standards, you can rest assured God has standards as well. Now, there's a silent way that we can preach to others. Watch what it says. Many a soul who was convinced of the truth has been led to decide against it. Why? Watch what it says. By the pride and love of the world displayed by our sisters. Then it goes on. When these persons have seen our sisters making no such much displaying dress, making so much displaying dress, they have said this people dress much fully as much as we do. So they're saying they're supposed to be Christians, but the same way that I'm dressing to go to a club is the same way that they're dressing to go to church, so they can't truly believe what they say that they believe. When you become a Christian, God says you're a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So if we're saying that we're converted and we're still dressing the same way we dressed when we went to a club, the same, and we're coming to church the same way, then you might not have been a new creature. Amen? It says in Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 1, and this is the experience that you find. It says, we will eat our own bread. We will wear our own apparel. Only let me be called by thy name to take away our reproach. What are they saying? I want to be called a Christian, but don't tell me what I have to eat. I want to be called Christ's name, a Christian, but don't tell me what I have to wear. I'll be wear what I want to wear, I'll eat what I want to eat, but only let me be called by thy name. Christian, Christian. Now, it continues, and this is what the people are saying. They cannot really believe what they profess, and after all, they must be deceived if they really thought that Christ was soon coming and the case of every soul was to be decided for eternal life or death. They could not devote time and money to dress according to their existing fashions. How little did those professedly believing sisters know of the sermon their dress was preaching? It is a silent sermon that we preach. Now, as we've mentioned, a person's character is judged by his style of dress. And I've proven it to you, but let me do it again. What is this person's profession? How do we know that? I don't see anything on the screen that says doctor. By how he's dressed. We're judging him by how he's dressed. He could be a thief. He could be a robber. He could be a deceiver, but we see that he's wearing a doctor's apparel, so we automatically say that this person is a doctor. We're judging him by how he dresses. What about this man? I don't see anything up there that says police. Why do you say he's a police? Based on how he's dressed. We're judging him based on how he dressed. He could be a wolf in sheep's clothing, but we're saying that he's a cop based on how he's dressed. We're naturally judging the person by how they dress. Do you see it yourself? Now, what about this person? Rap artist or thug or something that we don't think to be good. But the reality is this person could be the only innocent and true and genuine person of these three. But what are we doing? We're judging him based on how he's dressed. Am I right? So we naturally judge people by what they wear. Now, it says here, Satan knows that women have a power of influence for good or evil. Therefore, he seeks to enlist them in his cause. He invents multitudes of fashions and tempts the women of the present day. And who's to blame? The church is partly responsible because we're not thorough enough in ensuring that once a person makes a decision to give themselves to Christ, that they also make a decision to look the way Christ said that they should look. Notice what it says here. One of the points upon which newly come which newly come to the faith will need faithful instructions in, is the subject of dress. In the examination of candidates for baptism, this subject should not be lost sight of. Let the new converts be faithfully dealt with. Are they vain in dress? Do they cherish pride of heart? 
The idolatry addresses a moral disease. It must not be taken over into the new life. In most cases, submission to gospel requirements will demand a decided change in dress. True conversion of the heart will work wonderful changes in the outward appearance. And then we're told that the king's daughter is all glorious within. So once that person has a conversion within, then it says her clothing is of wrought gold. Her clothing will be beautiful because the heart is beautiful. Why? Because if the heart is right, your words, your dress, and your acts will all be right. So if the heart changes, the dress should change. And we'll see that as well. Now, the Bible says in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 10, I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is whoredom of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. So the Bible is saying, I see that a terrible thing has come into the church of God. Now, watch what this says. Do not my sisters trifle along with your own souls and with God. I have been shown that the main cause of your backsliding is your love of dress. Fashion is deteriorating intellect and eating out the spirituality of our people. Obedience to fashion is pervading our Seventh-day Adventist churches and is doing more than any other power to separate our people from God. So we see that this is a very, very serious matter, and that's why God spoke of it spiritually to Laodicea, and the spiritual application only makes sense if the natural application makes sense. Am I making sense? All right, let me give you a perfect example. What is the message to Laodicea? Thou knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and what's the next word? Naked. Now we know that the text is talking about from a spiritual perspective, right? But is it shameful, if it's not shameful to be physically naked, why would God use an analogy to make, to make it shameful to be spiritually naked? Am I making sense? So the analogy only makes sense if physical nakedness is, is, is shameful, Therefore, God is also saying spiritual nakedness is also shameful. And the biggest problem with Laodicea is that they do not truly know their condition. They know not that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, in creation, uh, in fact, let's go there. My time is not looking good already. But let's go there very quickly. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to have to skip through some things as we go through so that we can end on time. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Let's notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and his shame shall be one flesh. Now watch what it says. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now the Bible says they were naked and not ashamed. But when you go to Isaiah chapter 47, verse 3, the Bible labels nakedness and shamefulness in the same sentence. So God says to be shameful is also to be naked. But here it says that it's not. So what, does this, what is it saying? Well, that means the nakedness that the Bible is saying that was with Adam and Eve is not the nakedness that we think about. And how do I know that? When you go to the book of Psalm, the Bible says, God covered himself with light. And the Bible says that man was made in the image of God. So they weren't naked in the sense that they, they were fully exposed. They were covered with light. And that light that covered them represented the righteousness that God was utilizing to cover them. So that's in the book of Psalm chapter 16 and verse 15. It talks about their nakedness. No, Psalm chapter 16, I believe. All right. Now, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, I want you to notice that something else transpired. Because it said they were naked and not ashamed. Well, watch what happens in chapter 3. And this gives uh, more impetus as to what I'm talking about. Genesis chapter 3. And I want you to notice what the Bible says, picking up in verse 7. And that text from Psalm is Psalm 104 and verse 2, where it talks about um, how God covered himself with light. Genesis 3, 7. The Bible says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So here it is that the Bible says they were naked now and they hid themselves. But before the Bible said they were naked and not ashamed. What happened between them naked and not being ashamed to naked and hide themselves? Does anyone know what happens? It's a three-letter word. Sin. So as I mentioned, they were covered with the light of the righteousness of Christ. 
when they sinned, that light that represented the righteousness of Christ disappeared. And then as a result, they were fully exposed now and they were naked. And then God says, who told thee that they were naked? And then it says, well, we saw that we were naked and we made our own garments and we sewed our aprons together. And when we put our aprons on, even though they had the aprons on, when God came, they were ashamed. And that's a good point for us. There's some garments that we wear that if we recognize that we're in the presence of God, that that garment will consider to be shameful. Because when they made those aprons, they were fine. They thought they were good. But in the presence of God, it says we are naked and we are ashamed. Are you with me so far? All right. Now, what happened after that? Verse 11. Um, God says it was as a result of sin. And that's why you recognize that you're naked. So now, what does that light represent? Let's get it now. It says, the beautiful, soft light of God enshrouded the holy pair. This robe of light was a symbol of the spiritual garments of heavenly innocence. Had they remained true to God, it would ever be continued to be a shroud them. But when sin entered, they severed their connection with God, and the light that had encircled them departed. Naked and ashamed, they tried to supply the place of the heavenly garments by sewing together fig leaves for their covering. Now, all of these texts point out the same thing. It says, garment represents righteousness. The fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So what is God saying? The garments or the fine linen represents my righteousness. God is saying, you sewed fig leaves together, but it was not good enough. So God says, I have to recover you, re meaning you've tried to cover your own sins. But God says, You're, you cannot cover your own sins. Let me be the one to fully clothe you. So even though they had their own garments, aprons, and we know that aprons doesn't cover much, right? Covers here and a little bit of the front, and God says, you're still naked. And my friends, in verse 21, the Bible says, notice what it says in Genesis 3, verse 21. The Bible says, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. So what did God say? You have on your fig leaf garments, but it's not good enough. So I'm going to make some new garments to you, and I'm going to clothe you. And that's exactly what he did. Now, where did, where did those uh, garments that God made come from? Where did it come from? An animal, a lamb, a sacrifice, right? So what has God shown them? In order to cover your nakedness physically, and also to cover your nakedness spiritually, there is a great cost to cover your nakedness. And what was Christ pointing to? What was he pointing to? He was pointing them to the fact that a lamb had to be slain to cover you physically. A lamb also had to be slain to cover you spiritually. Your decision is going to cost Jesus Christ his life. And in order for you to be covered, it's going to cost my son his dear life. In order for us to re be recovered both spiritually and physically, my brothers and sisters, it costs a great sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. Now, as a result of their sin, the Garden of Eden, God made coats of skin for them. As a result of their sin, the seed time and harvest and the cold and the heat and the summer and winter, day and night shall not see. So in Eden, the temperature was even. Whatever temperature it was, whether it was 70 or 75, it was the same temperature all year round. But now that sin came into the play, we see that their garments were not sufficient enough, so God had to give them garments that could cover them in the cold, in the winter, as well as in the summer. So there was a climate change. The atmosphere, once so mild and uniform in temperature, was now subject to marked changes, and the Lord mercifully provided them with garments of skin as a protection from the extremes of the hot and the cold. So our garments also protect us from the extremes of the hot and the cold. Now, when you study health, one thing that you recognize is that health requires perfect circulation. If you have good nutrients in your body and your blood is stagnant, are you healthy? If you have good oxygen in your body and the blood is not circulating, are you healthy? So if you're not having good circulation, you're not going to have good health. 
So perfect health requires perfect circulation. They, they kind of go hand in hand because you're not going to have perfect circulation unless you're doing other things to give you perfect circulation, and you're not going to have perfect health unless you have perfect circulation. I hope I'm making sense. So now, there's a way that we can dress that affects our health physiologically. And again, this is going to be different for most of us because it was different for me when I read it. But notice, it says, in order to follow the fashions, mothers dress their children with limbs nearly naked. And the blood is chilled back from its natural course and thrown upon the eternal organs. Breaking up the circulation and producing disease, the limbs were not formed by our creator to endure exposure as was the face. The Lord pro provided also large veins and nerves for the limbs and the feet to contain a large amount of current of human life that limbs might be uniformly and warm as a body. Thus should be so thoroughly clothed as to induce the blood to the extremities. So what is it saying? Satan has invented the fashion that leaves the limbs exposed, chilling back the life current from its original course. And then she says, even life is sacrificed and frequently sacrificed at the God of fashion. So when we leave our limbs exposed and only our, 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 our um, abdomen and our middle section is covered, what tends to happen is that our arms or our legs are not as warmed as the rest of our body. And what does blood like? Blood likes heat. So the blood is naturally going to stay longer in the area that has the most heat. If you want to do a test, just put your hand in some warm water. And you're going to see that your, 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 your hands become red. Why? Because the blood is going to go where the heat is. When a lady has cramps and she's having pain in her abdomen, what we recommend is that she does a hot foot bath. What does a hot foot bath does? It pulls the blood down to the feet and away from the abdomen, thus causing the blood to move away from pooling the area. How does it happen? Because blood like heat. When a person has a chronic headache or some kind of headache, that's just, they can't, this won't be shaken. I remember about five years ago, I had a, a headache, I had the flu, and I was in really bad shape. And finally, I dragged myself out of bed and did a hot foot bath. What happens when you're having a headache? The blood is pooling in the head. So you do a hot foot bath, and what it does do? It draws the blood down to the feet away from the head, and then the headache dissipates. What am I saying? Blood likes heat. So if we have our bodies co covered just in our midsection, and our arms and our legs are exposed, then the blood stays more stagnantly in that midsection. Therefore, it throws off our circulation, and perfect health requires perfect circulation. Therefore, when God reclothed Adam and Eve, they had their limbs and their legs exposed, and God recovered them so that they were covered all throughout their body. I hope that makes sense to you. Now, the question always comes up, what about the summertime when it is 110 degrees outside or 100 degrees outside? And I thought the very same thing. And the key is this. In the summertime, you just make sure that you're wearing light and pure cotton or pure wool material. You just don't want to wear the polyester and the rayon and all these uh, these fake material that does not induce sweating and does not induce circulation and so on and so forth. So whatever we wear in the summertime, just make sure that it's 100% cotton and it's light. And you actually find yourself to be cooler. And how do I know that? Because most people that works outside all day, guess what they do? They wear long sleeves. And in fact, when you go to the Middle East, guess what? It is 113 degrees Fahrenheit for most of the time in the Middle East, for about eight months out of the year. Even the, the sea itself is about 99 degrees. And this is in Dubai. And you notice how these ladies are dressed? And the person that's dressed different, they're like, what in the world is she wearing? So sometimes the heat in our minds are more psychological. So I remember a few years back, I started wearing long sleeves, pure cotton materials all throughout the year. And it's, it's a wonderful blessing. Let me show you why it works. I was in Jamaica, and um, I went down for a funeral, and my, it was hot, and you know, when it's hot, it's hot. I don't care what you're wearing, you're going to be hot. If you're wearing long sleeves or you're wearing short sleeves, you're going to be hot. 100 degrees is 100 degrees. Amen? <laughs> but anyway, I was in Jamaica, and everyone was hot, and my, my sisters, you know, they came out in their, you know, tank tops, and I, I had on my long sleeve cotton shirt the way I always do, and my long cotton pants the way I always do, and they were saying... Man, you look hot. And the funny thing is they're sweating and they're fanning themselves and they're brushing themselves. And I was hot too because, you know, it's 90 degrees. I'm hot. They're hot. But they were much more uncomfortable than I was. 
And then what happens now, then we went to Mandeville that night, because we were in Kingston, and we went to Mandeville that night, and in Mandeville, it gets very cool at night. So now, because I'm even all throughout, night it got cool, and then you see goosebumps all over their body. And then in addition to that, mosquitoes came out, and they're swatting themselves and hitting themselves, and the whole time I'm just relaxing. Why? Because I simply follow God's plan to make sure that I'm evenly clad as we're told all throughout the year. It, it, it helps circulation, it helps health, and it helps other things such as too much mosquito bites as well. Amen? <laughs> all right, then God also talks about plain distinction. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5, God talks about plain distinction, and we're going to put that text up on the screen. It says, God designed that there should be a plain distinction between the dress of men and women. Plain distinction. Now it says, A woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garments, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5. So God says, when there's not a plain distinction between what a man wears and what a woman wears, the Bible says that is an abomination unto the Lord. Now I'm going to show you historically how this plain distinction went away. Notice what it says here. It says, I saw that God's order had been reversed. And his special direction disregarded by those who adopt the American costume. I was referred to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, that a woman should not wear a man's garment and so on and so forth, and all that do so is an abomination. Then she says that God would have his people adopt, would, God would not have his people adopt a so-called dress reform. It is immodest apparel, wholly unfitted for the modest, humble followers of Christ. Now, why did Ellen White say this during her time? This was the American costume. Now let, now let me ask you honestly. Does that seem immodest? Doesn't seem immodest just looking at it at face value, does it? Doesn't seem that immodest. So this came about in the 1860s. And um, when it came about, it was then propelled forward by a lady by the name of Mary Walker. And this is all history. And by the way, this, this is a shortened version of the presentation. It normally takes two, two presentations at about an hour. So I'm just lumping a few things together. So I didn't put all the details. But Mary Walker is the one that began to propel this forward. And it's an outfit consistent of a dress, a cap, vest, boots, coats, or dress reached from about mid-thigh to just below the knees. So this was the American costume. And it was said that this is immodest and that this is an abomination. Now let's begin to look at why. Mary Walker started off with this. And then, the photos above are uh, Mary Walker. She started out wearing the regular American costume, but became increasingly masculine in her attire. She was proud that she was arrested several times for impersonating a man. She had taken to fully wearing men's clothes, from the top hat, wing, collar, and bow tie, to the pants and shoes. So when she did this, a few things happened. Homosexuality, roles of men and women, dress, all of these got confused because up until this point, women only wear dresses and men only wore pants. But this American costume was kind of an in-between that allowed women to begin to wear a pants slash skirt together. And when this began to happen, crime began to increase. Women's role began to be become confused. And then homosexuality always also increased. There's a lot of things that happened behind it. And we can see the residual effects for it even years later. Um, look at this. I mean... This doesn't look like a man's garment to me. <laughs> and in addition to that now, men are wearing dresses. And these are recent photos. Look at this. And a lot of celebrities now are getting into it. This is Kanye West. And um, these are other stars that I don't even know. Ben Diesel, R. Kelly. This is another rap artist. I don't know who that is. And I mean, if there's anyone that I did not expect to be wearing a dress, it would be Snoop Dogg. And Snoop Dogg is wearing a, uh, wearing a, a skirt. So we see that there's a lot of confusion and roles reversing. And this is Will Smith's son. And he says that I am a female model. So he models females clothes, even though he's a male. And I, I, in fact, I don't even, I, he, he said he's not homosexual because he actually has a girlfriend, but he just says, you know what? I am a female model. So he models females' clothing. Look at him. That's him right here. And you can see that he's with some other ladies that are modeling 
these female garments. So there's a whole bunch of confusion that has come into society. But remember, she said that there should be plain distinction. Now, let me ask a question. And the Bible also said that there should be plain distinction. A man should not wear that which pertaineth unto a woman, and a woman should not wear that pertaineth unto a man. Now, question. Is this plain distinction? I've done this. If I had time, I would do it. But I've asked many congregations to tell me which one is the male and which one is the female. And so far, 100% of every congregation that I've went to has gotten it wrong. And what does that tell us? It's not plain distinction. Is that clear? Now, she says, there's an increased tendency to have women in the dress and the appearance as near as li like the other sex as possible and to fashion their dress very much like that of men, but God pronounced it abomination. Of course, we said in the Bible talks about the abomination. Anyone that has an abominable thing shall not be in the book of life. So 100% of the times it's been wrong. People have never guessed 100% which is a male and which is a female because it's not plain distinction. Now, when you go to a restroom, the restroom actually has plain distinction. Right? What restroom would you go to? Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> what restroom would you go to with this? It doesn't say, man. Why would, why would you go to the men's bathroom? <laughs> so there it says men. Now what about this? What bathroom would you go to with that? Why would you go to the female's bathroom? It doesn't say anything about a woman. Whereas, you see, this is plain distinction. So when God talks about plain distinction, there should be plain distinction. Again, I know this is new to many of us, so it's not condemnation. It's simply education. And my goal is just to present to you what I have studied and my conclusion in the Bible, and then it's up to us to make a decision. Amen? All right. Now, through the American costume, Satan was able to accomplish two purposes. Because remember, during that time, all women only wear long flowing skirts. There was no women wearing pants, and there was no such thing as a short miniskirt. So all women wear long dresses. Go back to the 1860s and check it out. And all men wear pants. So through the American costume, he accomplished two purposes. He took away the pants now, and then left the, uh, he took away the skirt and left the pants. So then through this American costume, it was like a segue, kind of an in-between, to kind of prepare the minds for what his original plan was. Because remember, Satan works step by step. He knows where he wants to get you to, but he doesn't just say go there because it's going to be too extreme. Because remember, women were getting arrested for wearing knee-length, women would have gotten arrested for wearing knee-length skirts at one point. Women would have also gotten arrested for wearing men's garment as Mary Walker did at that time in the 1860s. But then Satan says, you know what? I'm going to slowly but surely prepare their minds for my original plans. And then he took away the pants, the skirt, and left the pants, and then women started wearing pants. And this is Ehau. And Ehau, I'm going to skip through these, says, people who live strictly by the Bible believe that pants are on women are immodest, based on Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5. So I'm going to skip through this. But this is Ehau. But then Satan accomplished another purpose. He now took away the pants and left the skirt. See, what he did was raised up the length of the skirt up to the knees with a pants underneath it. And then he accomplished two purposes. When he took away the pants, then you have knee-length skirts, which was something that was never, ever existing prior to this time. Then at the same time, he also had pants that were worn by women, which was something that also never existed to this time. So he desensitized the minds by coming up with this American costume. And now this leads to our last phase, which is dress to kill from a moral standpoint. And remember, this is written in the 1860s, and LOIC and these things coming around says, my views were calculated to correct the present fashion, the extreme long dress trailing upon the ground, and also to correct the extreme short dress reaching about to the knees. So it was fashionable for women to wear their dress trailing on the ground and it's picking up dirt, it's picking up dog poop, it's picking up all kind of bacteria, it's dragging through water. And she says, we don't want to do that. Your dress is trailing on the ground, it's picking up bacteria. That's a, that's a fashion that is not right in the sight of God as well. So she said, your dress should not be trailing on the ground. But then she also says that you should not also be wearing the extreme short dress, which is reaching about the knees. So this is all around the time of the American costume. It came about, Satan accomplished both purposes, and now women are wearing knee-length skirts, which is something that never, ever existed prior to that time. 
And then she gives a guideline that the dress should not be trailing, but it also should not be too short. So it should be enough that you can walk up the stairs comfortably without your dress dragging or without having to lift up your dress. And it should also be long enough so that when you're sitting, you're not wondering how you're sitting and you're crossing your legs a certain way and wondering if someone is seeing certain things that they shouldn't see. All you have to do is make it very simple. Wear a dress that covers your legs and then you don't have to be doing this twitching and trying to cover up. Is that clear? And for ladies, you know, just, just sit in the mirror with, if you wear, you know, higher skirts or knee, just sit in the mirror and see your actions. And if you find that you're, you're doing too much from nagging to try to keep yourself covered, you can simplify it by just wearing a dress that's long enough. It's very simple. But sometimes, uh, unbeknown to us, you know, we're just naturally flinging to the society that we, which we've been in, which has become normal to us, and we're not re recognizing that there's an easier and a simpler way. And God's way is always easy, and God's way is always simple. All right, now, it says, In these last days, fashions are shameful and immodest. Now, watch what this says. They were brought in by a class over whom Satan has entire control. Now, I'm going to introduce you to Mary Quant. And this person is the one, she's not actually the inventor, but she's the one that really pushed it forward. So, it, it, was, it was actually invented by a guy. I'm forgetting his name right now, but she's the one that really made it, made it popular. And I want you to notice she says, why I invented the, the miniskirt. In fact, let me put this first. It says, she was one of the designers who took credit for the miniskirt and not hot pants, and hot pants. And by promoting these and other fun fashions, she encouraged young people to dress to please themselves and to treat fashion as a game. So why did she say I invented the miniskirts? So that young people could please themselves. Is that a Christian? What did it say about Enoch? Before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. What did it say about Christ in Romans chapter 15 and verse 3? For even Christ pleased not himself. So she's telling you this is the purpose in which I invented or came up or popularized the miniskirts and the hot pants. They asked her some questions. She says, this is what the miniskirt, this is what it preaches. Now remember we said dress preacher said, this is what the miniskirt preaches. She says, a sexual creature. She displays her sexuality instead of this coy business of hiding it. Today she dressed to say, I am sexy, I like men, I enjoy life. Many clothes are symbolic of those girls who want to seduce a man. So she's saying the reason why I invented the miniskirts is because I know that there's some girls that want to seduce a man, and when they wear it, they accomplish that purpose. And she also says some other things that I cannot say verbally, but she said it makes it easy access for during lunch. And the adults know what I'm talking about, during lunch breaks. When asked about what miniskirts will lead to, she answered in one word, and you see the word on the screen. She said it will lead to explicit and illicit activities. And again, we're judged by how we dress. Now, what was interesting is that when the miniskirt came about, rape began to increase drastically. And then they asked the law enforcement, do you think that the dress is affecting the increase in rape? 92% of law enforcement officers says absolutely. And again, I'm not justifying the pigs that does such an inhumane act. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is as men and women, because there's a certain way that men can dress as well to seduce the opposite sex, but as men as women, should we not be doing our part to ensure that we're not initiating illicit thoughts, behaviors, and activities towards another? Because when Cain was asked about his brother Abel, am I my brother's keeper? God is asking us the same thing. Are we our brother's keepers? So if we are our brother's keepers, why we want to wear something that causes impure thoughts and impure actions to our other brother if we are, in fact, our brother's keeper. Am I making sense? All right. So then, again, I'm always pressed with time, but we don't have time to go through this. But you can see that year after year, rape has just been increasing drastically when the miniskirts came about. Now, somebody says, what about bathing suits? You know, it, it, it always amazes me how someone could be in, in their house, in their undergarments, their bra and their underwear, and if somebody comes in and sees them, they'll run for cover and hide themselves. But all of a sudden, you put a five-letter word, B-E-A-C-H, and then they walk around so proudly in the same thing that they would be embarrassed about in their house. It just baffles my mind how an environment could change our mindset. 
Am I making sense? You could call it whatever you want. You can say, you know, it's different materials. It has the same fit as the undergarments that you don't want anyone to see us in. But all of a sudden we go to the beach and we're just walking around proudly. It just always baffles me. I'm, t- I'm telling you, that's how Satan messes, up, messes us up psychologically. The same thing that's embarrassing in one environment, all of a sudden is fashionable in another environment. Now, do you want to see what the original bathing suits look like? You don't want to see it? I can skip the slides if you don't want to see it. You want to see it? This was in 1879. You ready? That's the bathing suits. (laughs) Do you see how we become desensitized and reprogrammed? This was the bathing suits in 18... And this is Lord & Taylor. Big time fashion company. And then little by little, 1879, Satan began to desensitize us. And then there's a certain time that it began to climb up and they actually had police officers trolling the beaches to make sure that the women are not too far out of limit. So look, you know what he's doing? He's measuring. It should be a certain length by her knees, and if she's in violation, then she has to be put off the beach, and if she refuses, they'll be arrested. How much we have changed with society, my friends. But does God change? God's moral standards never change. And watch this. This is a fashion cop trolling the beaches on a Broadway Boardwalks prepared to use their badges to administer public modesty if the dress code was too inappropriate on the beach. But you see, it went from this to this being somewhat accepted that they're measuring to see if it's appropriate or not. And then it got bad. And then here you see that there's a lady being arrested because she was inappropriately dressed on the beach. This is from Chicago in 1922, women being arrested in Chicago for defying a ban of wearing brief swimsuits in public. Are they being arrested now? What has changed? Society has desensitized us to the principles and the morals of God. But God says, I am the Lord, I change not. His standards still remain, my brothers and sisters, and we cannot go with the flow of society. Because God said that there should be a distinction or difference between the holy and the profane. There are three books that I recommend, and I'm just going to run through these last few slides. But there's a book by Creeping Compromise by Joe Cruz. You want to get that book. There's another book called Enemy at the Gate by Joe Cruz. You want to get that book. And there's another book called Reaping the Whirlwind by Joe Cruz. You want to get that book. And I want you to notice the titles. At first, Creeping Compromise was coming into the church. Then the enemy was right there at the gate. And now the church is reaping the whirlwind. What the world is wearing, the church is wearing. God said there should be a distinction and a difference between that which is God's and that which is Satan's. All right, I'm going to skip through this for the sake of time. We've already talked about jewelry. Um, The wedding band is is a big problem in the church now, and we've talked about that before. But we're told that not one penny should be spent for a circle of gold to testify that we're married. Again, Hollywood, I remember... uh, this person spent $1 million on a wedding band in Hollywood. You know how long that wedding lasts? Literally one day. One day. So what am I saying? Wedding bands does not save marriages. House bands saves marriages. The husband is the house band of the home. There should be a sacred circle around the family. That's what saves marriages. Now again, 80% of Hollywood has divorces and they buy the most expensive rings. 80%. So what does that tell us? Wedding bands have nothing to do with saving marriages. Then we have 74% of third marriages that end in divorce, 67% of second marriages that end in divorce, and 50% of first marriages that end in divorce, and 98.9% of them, and I'm just making those numbers up, but 98.9% of them, they're wearing rings. So what does that say? Rings have nothing to do with saving marriage. In fact, we showed you websites that actually targets married couples. So question, when God performed, praise God, God himself, when he performed the, the first marriage ceremony in Eden, did we read anything about a ring? When we read throughout the Bible, do we read anything about any ceremony in the Old or New Testament that anyone that was sacred and holy, utilized a ring, yes or no? So if God didn't do it, the question is, where did it come from? 
Let's find out where it comes. We do a lot of things that we just adapt through society, not knowing where it came from. So let's see where it came from. And by the way, John Wesley, the Methodist founder, he says, don't wear the ring, stay away from the gold, stay away from all these ornamentals and so on and so forth. He says, don't do it. But let's find out where it came from. John Henry Newman. Somebody wanted to get it, so I'll let you get it. Amen? John Henry Newman, Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion to the heathens, transferred into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own. So remember, Constantine is the one that combined, combined church and state. He baptized paganism. He made a promise to his mother that I'm a Christian. So he took all his pagan, reviews from, pagan beliefs from Rome and then says, I'm going to bring it into religion. Then it says, the use of temple de dedicates to uh, particular saints, increased lamps and candles, uh, votive uh, offerings, holy water, processions, sacerdotal vestments, the tonsor, and then the ring in marriage. I have a misspelling in there, but the ring in marriage, turning to the east images, ecclesiastical chants, and so on and so forth. But what this telling us, the ring in marriage came through paganism, my brothers and sisters. It came through Rome. So we must know our history. Again, Encyclopedia Britannica tells us where the wedding ring came from. This use of the ring, which was the, thus purely secular in origin, received ecclesiastical sanction from the 11th century. It did not come from God. It came from Rome. It came from paganism. We won't talk about this. We looked at the makeup before, but you remember this? A man actually sued his wife because he married her and said, oh, she was so beautiful, but when she woke up the next day without her makeup, I could not recognize her. So he wanted to sue her. But we leave that for the sake of time. So we talk about makeup. We, God says, look, when, when I made you, you are beautiful. When God looked upon Eve, he says, you are very good. God didn't take anything and, and had to put makeup on her. He said, you are very good. And sometimes because we have adapted our minds to society, then we think that we're not naturally beautiful. But God says, you are naturally beautiful just the way I made you. Amen? Now, question, should we dress like the world? Should we dress like the world? Christians, now this is the balance that I love. Christians should not take pains to make themselves a gazing stock by dressing differently from the world. But if when following out their conviction of duty in respect to dressing modestly and healthfully, they find themselves out of fashion, they should not change their dress in order to be like the world, but they should manifest a noble independence and moral courage to be right if all the world differs from them. So what is it saying? If the world is dressing modestly, dress modestly the same way the world is dressing modestly. But if the world changes over and is dressing immodestly, don't feel that you have to look like the world in the immodest dress. It says it plain, in plain language here. It says, if the world introduced a modest, convenient, and helpful mode of dress, which is in accordance with the Bible, it will not change your relation to God or to the world to adopt such a style of dress. Isn't that a wonderful balance? So you find that a lot of people say, you know what, I'm going to dress like a Christian, and they're still wearing the dresses from the 1800s. We don't need to do that. There are modern dresses in 2018 that still covers you up, that still have you looking like a modest Christian, but you still look like you're in 2018. And we, in those dresses, we can adopt those dresses. We don't have to go back and get dresses from the 1800s to say that we're modest. Amen? Now, I always like to close out with this. Muhammad Ali, in following... Incident took place when Muhammad Ali's daughter arrived at his home wearing clothes that were not modest. Here's a story as told by one of the daughters. When he finally arrived with the chauffeur escorted by my younger sister Layla and me my father's, into my father's suite, as usual, he was hiding behind the door waiting to scare us. We exchanged many hugs and kisses as we could possibly give in one day. My father took a look at us. Then he sat me down on his lap and said something that I will never forget. He looked me straight in the eyes and said, Hannah, Everything that God made valuable in the world is covered and hard to get to. Where do you find diamonds? Deep down in the ground, covered and protected. Where do you find pearls? Deep down at the bottom of the ocean, covered up and protected in a beautiful shell. Where do you find gold? Way down in the mine, covered over with layers and layers of rock. You've got to work hard to get to them. You look at me, he looked at me with serious eyes. Your body is sacred. You are far more precious than diamonds and pearls, and you should be covered too. 
when we come to Jesus, my brothers and sisters, there should be a change of raiment. That's what Joshua the high priest did. He changed his raiment. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 27 and 35, the Bible says those demoniacs, when they were possessed by devils, it says they were naked and gnashing their teeth. When they came in contact with Christ, the Bible says they were clothed and in their right minds. Amen? So when we come to Jesus, let us be clothed and in our right minds. Let us take off the fig leaf garments that we thought was covering us and allow Christ, the slain Lamb of God, to cover us with his righteousness. And we mentioned that the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. If our dress represents the righteousness of Christ, which part of us would we want to leave uncovered? Amen? If, it's, if it represents Christ's righteousness, I want my entire body to be covered. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for what we've learned thus far today. And we pray that it will not just be something that goes in one ear and out the other. As we mentioned, Father, there are certain things that we don't know that can hurt us. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And then there's some that reject knowledge. And he says, because they have rejected knowledge, I will also reject them. I pray that in our dress, in our minds, and in all aspects of our beings, people can see visibly that we have been in touch with Jesus. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.